Okay, good morning everyone, it's great to be back. Pesach is officially behind us. And uh, we've moved on to the new season. So it is, uh, it's great to see everybody. We have the uh, privilege of studying together this week Parshas Shmini and reading Parshas Shmini. Parshas Shmini begins, It was on the eighth day. The eighth day of what? What day on the calendar was this day in fact? Not the eighth day, but it was... It was the first day, it was Rosh Chodesh Nisan. Why is Rosh Chodesh Nisan referred to as the eighth day? Torah's math seems to be a little off. The calendar's a little bit off. So Rashi tells us, It was in fact the eighth day. It was Shmini Lemiluim. Rosh Chodesh Nisan. Because uh, this was the eighth day to the Miluim for seven days. The Kohanim were instructed to go into the Mishkan and to watch Moshe. Moshe would do a dry run. He would each day, every day, assemble and disassemble the Mishkan. And he would go through the daily uh, functionality of the Mishkan. And this was the dry run. The Kohanim would watch and they would learn. For seven days, Moshe assembled and disassembled. It was at the completion of the week of the Miluim that now the inauguration was to happen. It was the eighth day of that process, which was really the first day of the Mishkan functioning in all of its glory, and that happened to coincide with Rosh Chodesh Nisan. If it was Rosh Chodesh Nisan, the first day, the inauguration of the Mishkan, why describe it as the eighth day? Hashmini. So the answer, uh, the Chalban, Reb Chaim Kohn gives in his Sefer, Tal Lechayim is, because the number eight is exactly what the Mishkan is all about. Seven, we know, corresponds with nature, corresponds with the days of the week, it corresponds with creation. The eighth, number eight, corresponds with that which is above nature, that which is supernatural, that which transcends, that which in fact supersedes. Rashi also quotes the Chazal who tell us that the day the Mishkan was established, was inaugurated, was as celebratory, was as joyous, was as great an achievement as the day of the creation of Shamayim Va'aretz, the day of the creation of the world. It was the fulfillment of creation. Creating a spiritual abode where the Shekhinah would be Shoda, where Hashem's presence would be intensely felt, was the fulfillment for the very which reason which the world was created. But how could you compare Esrach Chaim Kohn, the Chaban, what do you mean? Moshe assembled and disassembled the tabernacle for seven days and that correlates or that parallels the creation of the world? Hashem created for seven days and then he was done, he rested on the seventh day. So he quotes the famous Chazal who tell us, the rabbis teach us, that in fact, Hashem was bore olamos umacharivon. Hashem created many worlds before ours and he destroyed all of those worlds. This wasn't Hashem's first attempt. Now it's in itself a difficult medrash. What does it mean? God, the infinite, omnipotent being, the perfect being who can get it right the first time, what does it mean he had to create and destroy, create and destroy, until he finally settled on our world? Rabbi Salavechik famously says that Hashem was creating a precedent for the fact that we make mistakes, that it's okay for it not to go right the first time. It's okay to have to start again. The Rebona Shalom didn't need to, but he was modeling for us finite beings who are going to make mistakes, who are going to fail, that nevertheless it's okay to fail, you get back up and you try again. It's an important lesson for later in the parsha because on the first day, when it's time for Aaron to approach the Mizbeach, when it's time for Aaron to throw out the first korban on opening day, what does Aaron do? 
He hesitates. He doesn't want to walk out of the dugout. He looks over at the mound. I'm going to tell you someone's excited about the uh, first week of baseball, even though my team's not giving me much to be excited about. But it's good. It's good. They're, they're tumbling them. It's important. The beginning of the season. It's good. It's going to be okay. Turn it around starting tonight. That's right. Anyway, so uh, where was I? So Aaron is looking at the dugout and the mound, metaphorically speaking. He's looking over at the Mizbeach, and what does he see? The Mizbeach was designed with Karnos HaMizbeach. There were protrusions from the corners of the Mizbeach, horns that stuck out. If you looked at the Mizbeach from the side, if you looked head on, there would look like, it literally looked like a calf, an ox. There were horns sticking out. Aaron is about to approach the Mizbeach to bring the opening Karbanos. He sees, and what image does it elicit in his mind? The Egel. He says, whoa, I'm not worthy. This isn't for me. He hesitates. He pauses. He's reluctant to go out because he says, to serve the role of Kohen Gadol, to be the high priest? How could I do that? What does Moshe do? Moshe turns to his older brother and he says, Krav ala Mizbeach. Come close to the Mizbeach, you can do it, you got this. Rashi quotes Chazal who say that Moshe turned to Aaron and said, Lama Tabosh, why are you ashamed? Lekach Nivcharta, for this you were chosen. Hashem designated you the Kohen Gadol. So the simple understanding is that if Hashem had any problem with you, if Hashem thought that you were unworthy because of your role and involvement in the Chaita Egel, he wouldn't have designated you to be the Kohen Gadol. He wouldn't have assigned you to bring the opening korban. The fact that you were chosen shows that you were meant for this position, for this mission. So come on, get up, get going. You were meant for this. Hashem designated you for this. You can do it. Let's go. And in fact, Aaron receives the encouragement well, and it's what he needs in order to get going. The Ksav Sofer has another interpretation. Ksav Sofer says, that no, what Moshe was telling him was, Likach nivcharta. For this you were chosen. What does it mean, for this? Moshe turns to his brother and he says, Lama atabosh, why are you ashamed? Why are you embarrassed? Likach. From the very fact that you're ashamed and embarrassed, nivcharta. Your humility is why you were chosen. The fact that you understand you made a mistake, you admit the mistake of the role that you played. You seek to learn from the mistake that you made. That's not a reason for you not to do this. That is exactly why you are the most worthy person for this. The greatest candidate. Lama tabosh, why are you embarrassed? Why are you waiting? Lekach, because you were embarrassed. The very fact that you were humble to admit a mistake and learn from it. Lekach, it is for that very reason. Nivcharta. You can make mistakes and come back from it. In fact, the whole Chet Egel, the Gemara tells us, in the beginning of Avodah Zarah, those who just who learned the Daf, we completed Avodah Zarah recently. The very beginning of Avodah Zarah, the Gemara tells us, the whole Chet Egel was preordained from above. Hashem orchestrated events for the Chet Egel. Aye, why were they so accountable and punished so terribly? All kinds of explanations are offered. The Slanam Rebbe says, it wasn't the actual Chet Egel, it was the Mecholos, it was the circles, the dancing, the celebration they did afterwards. The fact that they were scared when Moshe didn't return, the fact that, at least according to the Kuzari, they needed a tangible means with which to create, to connect to Hashem, so they created something physical, that was ordained from above, that was divinely, that was a divine providence. They weren't accountable for that. But it was the celebration, the joy, the lack of shame, embarrassment, regret, remorse, that's what they were accountable for 
after the fact. So says the Gemara Vodazara, why would God orchestrate things? Why would God organize the world so to have almost suspended their free will and essentially divinely pushed them to the Chayta Egel? Why would He have done that? And the Gemara says, to set a precedent for us that individually and even nationally we can make mistakes and we can come back. We have to learn from them. We have to have regret. We have to have remorse. We have to have a sense of busha, a healthy dose of shame. Shame is a lost art in our world. We live in a world that says you shouldn't be ashamed of anything. Say who you want to be, be what you want to be, dress how you want to dress, act how you want to act, do what you want to do, whatever you want, nothing ever to be ashamed of. That's the world we live in. It's ripped down the veil. Said, don't be ashamed of anything. Be, do what? Let the whole world in or do what you do in private, out in public. There's nothing to feel a sense of, of a shame. Torah says shame is critical. Jewish people, one of the three character traits through which we are known is by Shanim, the capacity for busha, the capacity to say, you know, either I'm ashamed of something I've done or I'm blushing by something I'm listening to or seeing or I'm exposed to or I'm around. Manus Friedman has a famous book about people don't blush anymore, that loss of modesty. I've spoken about before that in, in the world of medicine there's a, a disease, a, a neuropathy, where a person's nerve endings are not working. And it's terribly, terribly dangerous. If a person's nerves aren't working, they don't know if they stepped on a sharp object, if they have internal bleeding, if they've got some horrible disease, if something's wrong. We need nerves. We, you know, sometimes you say, I'm jealous, I wish I didn't have pain. But I would give to have that disease and never feel pain. It's a bracha to have pain because the pain alerts you to something being wrong so it can be treated and healed and fixed. Halavai, sometimes pain, we struggle for the fixed part. Then we have to do other things that numb the pain. But pain is a bracha because it's an alert system. So what pain, what nerve endings are for the body is what shame is for the soul. The soul needs to feel a sense of shame. And when it loses that capacity to feel shame, it is horribly ill and diseased. It can't know when something's wrong. If you watch and listen and see things and they don't make you blush, and they don't make you cringe, and they don't make you recoil, inappropriate language, inappropriate imagery, inappropriate jokes, offensive. Today nothing's offensive, nothing's inappropriate, nothing's anything. Anything and everything go. And if we allow that, we're in trouble. We are by shun and we're characterized by our capacity for shame. So Aaron HaKohen, he is Bosh, and Moshe says, that's a good thing that you're ashamed. Lekach nevcharta, that's why you were chosen. It's okay to make mistakes and come back. Hashem set a precedent for that by being bona olamos umacharivan, by building worlds and destroying them until He came on the world the way He wanted it to be, the world that would last. So says the Chalban, coming back to our opening of the Parsha, says the Chalban, that's the parallel. Moshe assembled and disassembled the Mishkan for seven days. That parallels Hashem assembling and disassembling worlds for seven days, six days and then sticking with the world of the seventh day. And therefore it's Vayihi Bayom Hashmini. That's why it is on the eighth day. Because seven is the natural order. Seven is the world of limits. Seven is the world of boundaries. Seven is the world of nature. Eight transcends. Maharal writes about this often. We see this. There's a bris taking place in the other room. This is the theme of a bris. 
A boy has his bris on the eighth day because bris is telling us in the very organ where people have the greatest natural drive, impulse, inclination that leads them astray, that we on the eighth day say we have the capacity for the supernatural. It can transcend the natural to be able to live a supernatural. To not have to give in to our nature, but to be able to be above, not trapped or in the limits or boundaries of nature, we can be disciplined and dignified and in control and even beyond. The Mishkan was that place. When you were outside the walls of the Mishkan or the Mikdash, you were in the world of the nature, the natural world. And when you went into the abode of the Ribbonu Shalom, with the Shechina Washora, you were in a place brought to you by the number eight in a place that is the theme of supernatural, that which transcends eight. That is the opening of our parsha, Vayihi Bayom Hashmini. The beginning of the parsha lists the korbanos that Aaron HaKohen brings to dedicate the Mishkan. And it says, if you look at Pasuk Vav, Perak Tes Pasuk Vav, chapter 9, verse 6, on page 588 in the article Stone Chumash, Moshe, Zeadavar Shetziva Hashem Ta'asu, Moshe tells his brother, Aaron, that that which Hashem says you have to do, and when you do it, when you'll bring these karbonas, when you'll live that life, when you'll be sanctified, then the glory of Hashem will appear to you. What does that mean, the glory of Hashem will appear to you? That when you bring these karbonas, when you fulfill your mission for which you are created, Hashem's presence will descend upon you. you will, Hashem's presence will dwell in the Mishkan, you will feel that you are with him. The Targum Yonasan, the Targum Yonasan has an amazing translation. If you have the, uh, your Mikros Gedolos, there on Perak Tes Pasuk Vav, says the Targum Yonasan, Omar Moshe, Dein Pizgamot Savdun Abru Yas Yitra Bisha Min Libchon. Moshe turns to his brother Aaron and says, this is the matter you have to do. What is it you have to do? Abru yas yitra bisha min libchon. You have to, how does he translate? What is the actual thing that you have to do? Simple understanding of the text is you have to offer the karbanos. How does the Targum Yonasan translate it? Remove the yetzahara from your heart. If you want to feel Hashem's presence, you need to remove the Yetzirah from your heart. It's an amazing comment of, of the Targum Yonasan. And based on it, the Kotzko Rebbe says that in order to acquire a connection with Shekhinah, if you want to feel spirituality, again, we live in the new age of spirituality. No one even knows exactly what that word means. I don't want to necessarily observe halacha. I don't want you to come to davening and have the formal text of the Siddur. I just want spirituality. Ooh, wow. I read... Deepak Chopra, and this one, and that one, and ooh, spirituality, spirituality, spirituality. Says the Kotzke Rebbe, the Talmud Targum Yonasan is telling us here that the formula, the, the way to achieve spirituality, if you want Hashem Shechina, assuming spirituality means a connection with the divine, the way to the connect with the divine is by eliminating the Yetzirah. You can't give in to your Yetzirah. You can't be undisciplined in what you look at and what you say and what you listen to and how you eat and how you do your business dealings. You can't be undisciplined and think that you can achieve spirituality. That the route to spirituality, the way to make contact with the divine, 
is to remove the Yetzirah. That's what the Targum Yonasan is translating. He's teaching the Pasuk to tell us that is, you want the Shechina to be Shora? You want Hashem to, to reside within you? Then you have to remove the Yitzra Bisham in Libchon. You have to remove the Yetzirah from our very hearts. And of course, this goes all the way back to when we are introduced to the Mishkan and Sefer Shmos, the Shachanti Bisocham. Hashem says, forget the building and the walls and the bricks and mortar and the curtains. I want to dwell in you. I want you to make contact with me. I want to feel that I'm with you all the time. But I need you to do what you need to do. And what we need to do as a prerequisite to that is to remove the Sahara. You can't be corrupt. You can't be immoral. You can't be undisciplined. You can't be undignified and think that you can have spirituality. That's a counterfeit spirituality. We're going to get to that in our Parsha as well. We talk about the role of wine and alcohol. There are counterfeit highs and there are counterfeit spiritualities. They're not real. A genuine spirituality, which means contact, connection, feeling an intimate rendezvous with the divine, must, as a prerequisite, have at least the attempt to remove the Sahara, to be disciplined and to be dignified. Critically important. Okay, what's next in our Parsha? We have the priestly blessing as part of this inauguration, the karbanos that Aaron was designated by Moshe to bring. We have the priestly blessings. If you look on page, where is it? Perak Yud, Pasuk, Chav Perak Yud I'm sorry, Perak Tes, Pasuk The end of Perak I'm sorry, go back a Pasuk, Chav Beis. I apologize. Chapter 9, verse 22, the bottom of page 590. So Moshe, Aaron does approach the Mizbeach. He brings the Korbanos. He is sanctified. He gets the ball rolling on his role, his mission in the world. And then, He raises his hands. And he gives the people a bracha. What is the bracha that he gives? Look at Rashi. The birchas koanim. The bracha mishuleshes. We'll read in Parshas Nasa, the bracha mishuleshes, we call it the threefold bracha, really it has six brachas. Yivarecha Hashem, v'yishmarecha. Yer Hashem panavelecha, v'yichunecha. Yisar Hashem panavelecha, v'yasem lecha shalom. Why do we call it the threefold bracha, if really it includes six? So I don't know if I'll be here when we're at Parshas Nasa, the summer, but when we're up to it, ask me then. Why is it called the threefold bracha, if it has six? The real source, the text of the bracha, comes in Sefer Bamidbar. But the origin of the mitzvah, the source of the mitzvah of Birchas Kohanim, what we call duchening, duchening because the Kohanim ascend the duchen, they climb the platform in order to give the bracha, the source of the mitzvah appears here in our parsha. Aaron is giving that bracha to the Jewish people. And then it's followed by Yavon Moshe Aaron Now Moshe is joined, Aaron is joined by his brother Moshe. They go to the Omoed, they come out and they give the people a Bracha. What is the bracha they give? Rashi says, "Amru Hashem They give the people a bracha. May it be God's will that the shechina should dwell because of the 
your deeds, the deeds of your hand. The seven days that Moshe did the dry run, assembling and disassembling the Mishkan, God did not yet descend and dwell. And the people said, Moshe, we don't feel it. Where's the spirituality? God is not here. Why are we doing all this effort to be able to come back from the Chayta Egel? I thought it was so that God would return to us. We want to reunite. We want to reconcile. We miss the intimacy with Hashem. Where is He? That's why Moshe said to Aaron, seven days my dry run didn't do it. Now you need to, pun intended, take the bull by the horns. You need to approach the Mizbeach and begin the Korbanos, and that will bring Hashem down. Moshe says something astounding. Moshe, according to Rashi, says to the people, you're right, my seven days of practice, the dry run didn't do it. But you know, Aaron's greater than I am. Aaron is more worthy than I. And therefore, as soon as Aaron starts, Hashem will be back, you'll feel it, all will be good Put your trust in my brother Aaron. He is more worthy. He is greater than I. Some ask the question, how could, Aaron, how could Moshe say that? How could Moshe say that? Isn't it one of the 13 principles of faith that, Aaron, that Moshe is the greatest Jew who ever lived, who ever will live? One of the 13 principles of faith, one of the animamins, is to recognize Moshe's uniqueness, his distinction. Moshe is one only. So how could Moshe himself say, Aaron's greater, Aaron is more worthy than I, don't worry, put your trust in him. Isn't Moshe, kind of ironically, violating one of the 13 principles of faith, which is for Moshe to be the greatest Jew ever? How could Moshe violate the principle of faith that talks about himself to say that Aaron is even greater than he? I'll leave that as a question. Salam Rebbe deals with it in his Nesiva Shalom. But I'll leave that for you as a question because I want to keep going. But Rabbi Salavechik says here on this, the fact that this is the source of Birchas Kohanim and the bracha that Aaron gave. Rashi explains the first blessing was the priestly blessing. The second was a prayer to God to accept the service. They said, Yihiratzon, may it be God's will that the work of our hands establish for us God's presence. There's a specific halacha obligating the priest serving in the temple to pray at the end of the ritual that the order of worship be accepted as satisfactory. In other words, this is a source that the karbonos would be offered, and at the end, they would offer a prayer. Hashem, everything we just did, let it be pleasant. May it be acceptable to you. May it appease you. This formula of supplication was transferred from its original place in the temple ritual to our daily prayers. It should be familiar to us because we do the exact same thing. The Amidah constitutes an act of sacrificial worship in one's heart. The Pasuk says we serve Hashem with all of our hearts. Pasuk and Shema. Gemara says, What is the Avodah in the heart? What's the work you do? You do work with your hands. You don't do work with your heart. Work is with your hands. What's the work of the heart? The work of the heart is prayer. When you stand before God, you're not fashioning anything with your hands. You're not working hard with your legs. You're not working up a sweat with your body. You can be sitting absolutely still, but you're working incredibly hard. Because prayer, the ability to concentrate the heart, the ability to feel in the presence of the Rebona Shalom, 
the ability to submit to Him with a sense of utter dependence, reliance, the ability to admit we need Him and feel a sense of gratitude, all of that is extremely hard work. When you walk out of a meaningful davening, you could feel exhausted. You feel spent. Not physically, or even physically, because of the emotional experience of the exhaustion. The avoda of the heart is tefillah. In the Ritzei paragraph towards the conclusion of the Amida, one prays. So right, our parsha just told us at the end of the Karbanos, the Kohen would offer a prayer, Yehi Ratzon Hashem, may it be Ratzui. May all that we just did be acceptable to you, may it appease you, may it be pleasant to you, may you reciprocate and respond positively to it. We do the same in davening. If our davening are the karbonos of our hearts, it's the avodah shebelev, then we also at the end of davening or towards the end of davening say, Hashem, may this be pleasant, may you accept it positively. How do we do that? With what paragraph? We say that at the very end, although that actually is supplication that is beyond technically the Amidah. Within the technical Amidah, we do it as well. I'll give you a hint. We do it right after the part that parallels the Korbanos. We spoke about this several weeks ago. We have three opening brachos, Shvach, Shevach. We praise Hashem, as we described, not to flatter Him, but to understand our contrast to Him, to know Him. At the end, we have Hodah, we have gratitude. The middle 13 are the supplications, the requests, the things that we need. So right after those, what do we say? Ritzay. Ritzay. In the Ritzay paragraph, one prays Hashem will be satisfied with the prayer. What do we say? V'yishay Yisraelu svilasam b'yahava sekabel baratzon. V'yishay Yisrael, the fire offerings of Israel, which can be an allusion to the Korbanos, or the Yishay Yisrael is the fire in our heart. And usvilasam and our prayers, b'yahava sekabel baratzon. Accepted God with love and with favor. That paragraph of Ritzei is the same word as Ritzui, Ratzui, Nirtze. It's the same goal that that we just did, Hashem. We just invested ourselves, we just spent time, we just worked on something. Hashem, that which we just did, may it be Ratzui before you. And that is the purpose of the Ritzei. So from now on, you know, Ritzei is one of those paragraphs we kind of, many people tune out. The middle brachas, the bakasha, we have a lot of needs, a lot of wants, we're tuned in. Modim, ooh, gratitude is tremendous. Feel a sense of gratitude. Rabbi Penner was here a few weeks ago, he spoke at Chalashidus. He spoke about how when he says the words modim, he pauses just long enough to feel his heart beating in his chest. He stops for a moment to feel his actual heartbeat and to be mindful of his breath. And then in that context, when he remembers how grateful it is to be alive, to have a pulse, and to have air in his lungs, then he's ready for modem. Modem, we're back to paying attention. But Ritzay, who pays attention for Ritzay? But for now on, we've got to pay attention. Because Ritzay is the Ritzui. It's the Sekabel Baratzon. It's Baratzon. Hashem, everything I just asked you for, and Atachonein, I asked you for, Rifa'enu, Borechaleinu, Parnasa, and Shmakoleinu, all these things I need so badly, Sekabel Baratzon. I hope that it's, I hope that you accept it. I hope you understand where it's coming from and I hope that you'll respond to it positively. It's not the time to tune out. It's the time to tune in. Okay. We continue now, of course, with the heart of the Parsha, the tragedy of the Parsha, which was very poignant this week after Klai Yisrael suffered several tragedies last week, particularly in the five towns, the New York area, for those who followed horrific, horrific tragedies 
really paralleling this, young people who die so prematurely and seemingly out of nowhere. And this is what should have been the happiest day of Aaron's life. Aaron walks into the Mishkan, it's inauguration day. He is the feature, the centerpiece. He is designated, assigned the Kohen Gadol. Should be the happiest day in his life. And in a moment, in a flash, it turns into the most tragic. His sons, Nadav and Aviyu, are struck down. They die on that very happy day, which should have been that happy day. Why do they die? We're not going to spend time on this right now. We have in the past, you could listen online. What do Nadav and Aviyu do wrong? Are they drunk? Do they not have children? Do they bring a incense that they weren't instructed to bring? All kinds of suggestions, which tells you just how ambiguous the text is, the fact that we have such diverse suggestions. It's so ambiguous and it's such a mystery what they did wrong and how it could have been so egregious that it deserved that punishment and it deserved it instantly. They couldn't enjoy. And what about Aaron? His merit didn't deserve for this to be delayed so we could at least enjoy that opening day. The answer is, the answer is no. My uh, 10th grade Rebbe, Rabbi Asher Bush, suggests that maybe the connection between the death of Nadav and Aviyu and then the end of the parsha, the whole end of the parsha, the laws of kashrus, the rules of kashrus. What is the connection between... Lest you think I remember things from 10th grade, and I'm, an email, I'm on an email list where he sends out thoughts on the parsha, and they're excellent. I don't want you to be cheshed that I actually remember anything from high school. Sorry, Mom. So he suggests what's the connection between the death and the loss of Nadav and Aviyu, the tragic death of Nadav and Aviyu, and Kashras, the end of the parsha, it seems non sequitur. What's the connection between the two? So Kashras, according to some, Rashi and the Ramban say that Kashras is a chok. Lest you try to find reason for Kashras, it's a chok. Hashem said, eat this and don't eat that. This qualifies and that doesn't qualify. It's a chok. It's something which we can't comprehend. So Rabbi Bush suggests maybe that's the connection. The same way, what the Torah is telling us in Parsha Shmini is, that the same way that in the world of mitzvos I have chukim, I have like kashros and shatnas and kilayim. I have mitzvos which I can't comprehend. Para aduma, the quintessential chok. Just like in the world of mitzvos, I am asked to obey and to observe and to accept even when I can't comprehend. So too in life, there are moments in life that are chukim. And the loss of Nadav and Aviyu is a chok. Don't try to understand it. Don't try to comprehend it. Don't try to make sense of it. Don't try to figure it out because you won't be able to. Para Aduma, the greatest chok, beginning of Pasha's Chukas, described as the quintessential chok, Shlomo HaMelech says, Amarti the wisest of all men, Shlomo HaMelech. Yesterday's Nachyomi. Those who do Nachyomi yesterday, Malachim began, uh, we're into Malachim now, I think the third or fourth parak. Shlomo HaMelech, God says, You're the new king. Tell me, what do you want? What did Shlomo HaMelech ask for? It's such a beautiful parak. I thought of it as a rabbi, as a communal leader of any sort. It's really very, very inspiring. Because what does Shlomo HaMelech ask for? He says, I want wisdom. I want the wisdom and the sensitivity of the heart so that I can help people. I want to be able to resolve their challenges, their difficulties. I want to support them. I want to help them. Hashem, give me wisdom and the sensitivity of the heart to be able to help them. And what does Hashem say? He says, wow, most kings would ask for wealth and riches and wives and horses and, and, and kingdoms and palaces. And you asked for wisdom, so you know what? I'm going to give you all those other things and wisdom. Because that's what you wanted, that's what you cared about. So Shalom al is the wisest of all men. 
And he says, I can't understand paradum, it's beyond me. So just like there are chukim within mitzvos, there are mitzvos which no matter how hard we try, we can't understand, so too in life. There are moments in life, there are experiences in life, there are episodes in life which are chukim. We cannot comprehend, we cannot understand. And we have the model of Aaron Akoin and how Aaron reacts. How does Aaron react to the tragedy, the loss of his two sons? If I'm Aaron, I come to Hashem and I say, Hashem, I'm here to serve you. I'm in this Mishkan, it's all about you, and this is what you do to me on that day? What did they do that was so bad? What did they do that was so bad? No matter what the interpretation, they didn't marry, they drank wine in the, in the Mishkan, they uh, brought an Eshzara that wasn't commanded of them. Whatever it was, is it so terrible they deserve to be struck down in their youth, in their, in their prime? On my day, Aaron doesn't say any of that. What does he say? Vaidom Aaron. He in fact says nothing. The word Vaidom is very different than Vaishtok. Shtika is silence. Sheket Bevakasha. Sheket is silence. Shtika is silence. He's not silent. He's Vaidom. What's the difference between Sheket and Vaidom? Vaidom is saying something with silence. Sometimes your silence is the absence of words, and sometimes you can say more with silence than you can say with words. Aaron's Vaidom is saying more with silence than he does with words. It's a silence of faith. We're not exactly sure what, what he means within that, within that silence. I'll tell you something I've, I've said often, but I'll say it again, because uh, tomorrow night is Yom HaShoah. And I think that our parsha coinciding with Yom HaShoah, this loss and Aaron's reaction is, I think, not a coincidence. But um, a man once approached the Kloisenberger Rebbe. Kloisenberger Rebbe is an amazing, amazing person. He lost everything in the Holocaust. He lost, I think, 13 children. He lost his wife. This young man said to the Kloisenberger Rebbe, tell me, how is it that you and so many of the survivors found the courage and the strength not only to survive, but to rebuild your families, to rebuild the Jewish people, to remain positive, to have faith in society, in humanity, in Hashem. How is it possible? I'm sorry, 11 children. Kloisenberger Rebbe lost his whole family. He lost everything. So the Rebbe answered him in two words. He turned to him and he said, We say it at a bris. We just said it right here in the spot this morning. So the young man was startled. He thought he understood those words. We said it at the Pesach Seder. Those words come from the prophet, the Navi Yechezkel. And they mean, in your blood, live. In your blood, find life. We say it at every bris of a newborn Jewish baby boy. And it's an allusion to the time in Egypt, just prior to Yitzhak Mitzrayim, just prior to the Exodus, where the Jewish people were commanded to circumcise their sons and to bring the Korban Pesach, the merit of the two with, with, with which we left Mitzrayim. In the blood of your courage and willingness to offer the Korban Pesach, in the blood of your courage to circumcise your sons, find strength, find redemption in that blood. That's how it's normally translated. We say it at a bris. The Jewish people, we have spilled countless blood through the millennia. 
But it's through that blood, through that Mesiris Nefesh that I spoke about on the eighth day, the willingness to be Moser Nefesh, the willingness to spill blood. Chayi, that is the source of our survival, of our resolve, of our tenaciousness. So the young man commented out loud, thinking he understood that the Rebbe was hinting that they were able to move on. How? Because B'damayich Chayi. Through their Mesiris Nefesh, through the blood that they lost of their loved ones, Chayi, because of their Mesiris Nefesh, they were able to move on with Emuna. But the Rebbe looked at the young man and he corrected him. And he said, that's not what B'damayich Chayi means. The secret, the formula to the courage of survivors comes from somewhere else, said the Kloisenberger Rebbe. Where is it? It's our Parsha. That when Nadav and Avi are struck down and Aaron suffers unimaginably, the Pasuk describes Vayidom Aharon. Aaron was silent. Moshe's words, Moshe tries to encourage him. Bekrovaya Kadesh that Hashem sanctifies Himself with those closest to Him. We don't understand Hashem's ways. Really, they died al-Kiddush Hashem. And you know what Aaron does? He turns to Moshe, and what's his response? Silence. It's not that his response was nothing. His response was not nothing. His response was silence. Vayidom. Complete, utter, absolute, and total silence. Kloisenberger Rebbe says, Aaron put one foot in front of the other and kept going despite what had happened to him. That vayidom, that silence, is the affirmation of faith that I will not get paralyzed, I will not become stuck trying to comprehend, trying to understand, but the silence is that despite what has happened and my inability to understand or even accept, I put one foot in front of the other and I continue. And said the Kleisenberger Rebbe, the words B'damayich Hayi are not B'damayich the B'damayich the Dam of Mila and Pesach. B'damayich, Dalad Mem, is the Dalad Mem of Vayidom Aharon. B'damayich Hayi, with the Vayidom Aharon of Aharon, Hayi, that's how we live. Following the precedent that Aaron was able to do it, we too are able to do it. Eli Wiesel once was once asked, is there a tradition of silence in Judaism? Yes, he answered, but we don't talk about it. Vayidom Aaron, B'damayich Chayi, that's the B'damayich, the Kloisen Begarebe, and all of the incredible survivors whom we continue to honor tomorrow night. We have a 97-year-old survivor who will speak tomorrow night about his experiences and his, uh, and his stories. So what did they do wrong, Nadav and Aviyu? I said we weren't going to talk about it, but I'll share one insight from Rabbi Salavechik. The Rav in the uh, Chumash says, On the day of their installation, wearing their priestly vestments, Nadav and Aviyah were overcome by ecstasy and the desire to express their emotions. The incense that they burned was identical to that which their father Aaron had offered. But there was one significant difference. What did they do wrong? They brought the exact same thing as their father. So what did they do wrong? Aaron was obeying God's will, while Nadav and Aviyah performed an action that God had not commanded. If you want to get close to God, here's the deal. You can't make up what you want and what you think will bring you close to God. You have to do what Hashem tells you will bring you close. This is a repeat, says Rabbi Salavechik, of the Chet Egel all over again. Chet Egel, Hashem said, I, I respect that you want to draw close to me. You need a tangible physical connection. That's legitimate. That's reasonable. But you can't make it up. You have to do it based on what I say. And that's why Hashem responds to the Chet Egel by giving the Mishkan. And according to the Beis Alevi, that's why... Vayakal Pekudei, 
repeats Trumatitzave with the difference of Kashatziva Hashem as Moshe. That now they were doing what Hashem had commanded. An authentic relationship with Hashem is the result of not trying to guess and not trying to impose on Hashem what we think would bring us close to Him, but it's about responding to what He commands, what He tells us will bring. And it's just like any other relationship. You can't, if your spouse asks you to do something, you can't ignore that, do something else, and then say, but I thought this would bring us closer. The spouse will say, that's nice, but that's not what I asked. If you care about me, then you should do what I asked that I said would be meaningful and would bring us closer. Not ignore what I asked and think that you have some much better idea, which is really your version, but doesn't in fact meet the need or the want or the ask that I was giving. So the relationship with Hashem is no different than the other relationships in life. And that's, according to Rabbi Soloveitchik, what was going on here. The sin of Nadav and Aviv, he writes, illustrates a dichotomy in one's approach to religious observance. Religious divine service with its accompanying discipline versus ceremonial experience. A mitzvah is not merely a perfunctory action. It must also translate into experiential terms. The Torah demands that we experience joy and satisfaction when we perform a mitzvah. There are two ways to achieve the exalted state. The Jewish way and the pagan way. The Jewish way requires us to fashion our lives according to God's discipline, as illustrated by the word. What's it fact it called? We have 613 mitzvahs. What's the root of the word mitzvah? Tzivu, it's a commandment. The bracha we say that precedes every mitzvah is Asher Kiddushanu b'mitzvosav v'tzivanu. How are we sanctified? How do we achieve spirituality? Not by making it up on our own. Not by designing, innovating, radically changing. Not by being creative religiously. How do we experience spirituality? V'tzivanu. When we respond to what you, the infinite omnipotent being, who created us, designed us, and know what's best for us and how we can best connect to you when we obey and listen to what you think. Vitzivanu, when we perform a mitzvah, a tzivui. The reason we perform the mitzvah in our absolute, is our absolute surrender to God's will. Eventually we must progress from that surrender to a profound spiritual experience that encompasses our entire being. Prayer begins as an obligatory, even compelled act with rigid requirements of time, location, and behavior. We're particularly aware of this during the winter or in inclement weather. We must venture out into the cold from Minyan early in the morning and at night. However, as we progress in our relationship to prayer, we feel the rewards of intimate communion with God. The pagan approach, which is the antithesis of the Torah approach, begins with excitement and culminates in sin and disillusionment. It very much parallels the approach of the modern world, where one uses drugs or alcohol to create an artificial feeling of euphoria, masking one's actual life situation of disappointment and futility. Says the Rav, there are two ways to achieve and to attain and to experience spirituality. The genuine, authentic way and a counterfeit way. The genuine way is the one that God determined. The formula, the prescription that God gave for us. Sometimes it starts slowly. It takes mysterious nefesh. It's hard. But if you dedicate your heart, you do the avodah you connect with the panemius Satora, you connect with the deeper meaning of what you're doing, it is elevating. It's transformative. It is ecstatic. The counterfeit version is, begins with euphoria. You get high on drugs, you get drunk on alcohol, and it ends with shame. It ends with a hangover. It ends with, ends with a headache. It ends with, with a problem. Disappointment and futility. Korach erred in this manner. 
confusing the ceremonial with God's command. According to the sages, Korach attempted to discredit Moshe by posing two questions. If a person wears a garment is made entirely of tchelas, it is a valid fulfillment of the mitzvah tzitzis. The house is filled with Torahs, must the mezuzah be affixed to its doorposts. When Moshe said yes to both questions, Korach mocked him. Korach's error was his undue focus on the ceremonial aspect of the mitzvah while ignoring the aspect of God's command, which is the most important. The transgression of Nadav and Naviyu, whom the Torah describes as sanctified, was that they brought before the Lord foreign fire. Eish zara, asher This was a foreign fire that there wasn't a mitzvah. God didn't command it. The divine command and our discipline in obeying that command are the only healthy roots to religious inspiration. Any deviation is unacceptable and ultimately doomed to failure. I think it's important for our time as well. So many, even within the observant community, are trying to push the boundaries of religious creativity. Let's do this, let's try that, let's innovate this way, let's innovate that way. And once you break through the barrier of vitzivanu, when you've broken through the mitzvah, and now it's you imposing your creativity, your innovation, what you think will be meaningful, what makes you feel good, you're no longer worshipping Hashem, you're worshipping yourself. You've brought an Eish Zara, you've worshipped a Chet Egel. you are walking in the footsteps of Nadav and Aviyu and of those who perform the Chet Egel. It's not what Hashem wants. There is room for religious creativity, there's room for religious debate, there's room for religious growth and progress. But it has to be within the boundaries that the Balei HaMesorah tell us still fit within that which is a mitzvah, still fit within that which is a sense of vitzivanu. Okay. Almost done with our overview of the parsha. But forget the overview. We'll go now into... We'll see if we get to Kashrus in a moment. But that brings us to the few psukim I wanted to look at very quickly. Our Perak Yud Pasuk Ches. Because what comes right after the death of Nadan Aviyu, and in fact, its presence is what led some to think that it is what Nadan Aviyu violated. Perak Yud Pasuk Ches. Chapter 10, verse 8, top of page 594. By Daber Hashem al-Aron Hashem speaks to Aaron and he gives him a new mitzvah. And what is this command? Hashem tells Aaron, you and your sons, no wine. No wine. No intoxicating wine with you and your sons when you're going to come into my holy place. And if you do, if you drink and come in, if you drink in my place or drink and come in intoxicated, you know what the consequence is? Capital punishment, the death penalty, death. In order to distinguish between the sacred and the profane, between the contaminated and the pure, and to teach the children of Israel all the decrees Hashem had spoken to them through Moshe. This short, short section, these three psukim, Hashem gives Aaron a new mitzvah. The fact that Hashem gave him this command right after the episode of Nadav and Aviyu, is in fact what led some to say, that's what Nadav and Aviyu violated, they had come in drunk. What's the matter? Can't you have a l'chaim in the Mishkan? What's the matter with a good l'chaim? Alcohol takes away your inhibition, it calms, it relaxes you. For some, it makes you more open to spirituality, to spiritual experience. Within moderation, why can't you have a l'chaim in the Mishkan? So Rashi tells us, Yayin v'shecha, Yayin derech shechruso, it means intoxicating wine. B'vo'achem alo amoed, e'en li'ela b'vo'achem lahechel. B'gishnon l'mezbeach minayin, nemar kam b'yas o'amoed, v'nemar b'kiddush yadayin v'raglayin b'yas o'amoed. So it means not only in the o'amoed when you come up to the mezbeach, 
And what's the reason for this? Says Rashi Lahavdil. If you do the avoda while drunk, it is invalid. The avoda is no good. In addition to the punishment the Kohen who does it gets. What's the purpose? Lahavdil. In order to create distinction in lives. You want a lachayim outside the Mishkan, at home, a nice wine, glass of wine with dinner? There's nothing wrong with a nice glass of wine with dinner. But not in my space. Not in the Mishkan. Not in the Beis HaMikdash. In fact, the Balaturim says, This is the Gemara and Shavuot says, You should dafka make Havdalah on wine. The Gemara says, If you make Kiddush and Havdalah on wine, you'll have Banim Scharim. You'll have male children. But Havdalah should be on wine, but not in the Beis HaMikdash. Not in the Mishkan. Why not? What's the matter with the Lachayim there? Kliyaki here talks about it. The Ramban talks about it. But Rabbi Salavechik, interestingly, not in the Chumash here, they don't bring this. Rabbi Salavechik gave the following. He says, when it comes to Purim, the mitzvah of Purim is to drink. The mitzvah of Purim is the Vesumei Adeloyada, to get so drunk that you can't tell the difference. Or Haman and Baruch Mordechai. Why would you ever have a mitzvah to drink associated with a holiday? The word mitzvah and drink in the same sentence should be an anathema to the Jewish people. So Rabbi Salavechik, I'm not going to tell you the long version of it right now, I actually listened online to him give this lecture. You could listen on Y.U. Torah, whose 25th year site was last week. Rabbi Salavechik said, Rava is the one who teaches us Chayav Levesume. Rava is the sage who teaches us the obligation to drink on Purim. It's not a coincidence that Rava is the same sage who tells us, why don't we say Halal on Purim? The Gemara gives three reasons why we don't say Halal on Purim. One, because it's a miracle that happened outside of Israel. We don't say halal on miracles outside of Israel. Number two is Megillah is halal. Kriyasa Zuhilula, reading the Megillah is halal. So much so, by the way, that the Me'iri writes, if you find yourself somewhere with no Megillah, and you're not going to hear the Megillah, Yitaka say halal. There's a beautiful refutner on that for another time. The third reason is the reason of Rava. Rava says, why don't we say halal on Purim? Akate avde achashverosh anam. Because we are still subjects of Ahasuerus. Purim is a glorious holiday where we were spared from physical annihilation. But we still don't have a Beis HaMikdash. We still haven't returned Tashra, Sashchina. We haven't experienced the full Geula. We're in America. We're in Boca. We're still in Gullus. I know this is as good as Gullus gets. It's not a bad Gullus. If you have to be in Gullus, it's not a bad Gullus to experience. But it's still a terrible Gullus. If you think about the tragedies last week, it's a horrible Gullus. If you think about those going off the derech and you think about assimilation and you think about the threats to the Jewish people and the rise of anti-Semitism, it's a horrible, horrible gullus. We don't have a Beis HaMikdash. Said Rabbi Salavichik, it's not a coincidence, it's the very same Rava who says that we don't have the Beis HaMikdash and you're obligated to drink. Why? When is it that we drink, says the Rav? Because when we don't have access to being Lifnei Hashem, the real Simcha, if you look in the Torah, you'll see the word Simcha many times. And the word Simcha is always associated with two other words. V'samachta, l'fnei Hashem l'kach. L'fnei Hashem. Where does the greatest joy, the greatest Simcha derive from? The most authentic joy is by being in the presence of Hashem, by knowing nothing is random, nothing's coincidence, nothing's chance. There's order, there's meaning, there's purpose to the universe. Hashem is controlling everything. When one is in the presence of Hashem, they're overcome with a sense of calm, tranquility, serenity. 
and therefore with a sense of simcha. But what happens when you don't have access to that? When there is no Beis HaMikdash, when there is no Mishkan, when there is no place to go to with Hashra HaShchina, then the only way to experience Simcha is in a counterfeit version by drinking, by having a drink. Said by Salavechik, the Torah prohibition, Yayin V'Sheikhar Al-Tesht, when you come into my place, Bavoachem Al-Omo, it is, when you have the ability to be Lifnei Hashem, God forbid, don't, if you can have authentic Simcha, don't substitute it with the counterfeit. If you have access to the most authentic joy, don't, God forbid, substitute it for a counterfeit, inauthentic version of drinking. Yayin V'Sheikhar is an escape. It's a shortcut. It's fake. It's counterfeit. It is what the Rav was describing as the two types of spirituality. When you do it's a mitzvah, you want to get high? Get high on a mitzvah. Get high on God. Get high on tefillah. Get high on doing chesed. Those are transformative highs that stay with you. In fact, that's the, the Pasuk in Tehillim, and the Ramchal quotes this in Mesil HaShasharim, that the purpose of life is lehisaneg al Hashem. You can get high on God. That's lasting. It's transformative. The other counterfeit highs, alcohol, drugs, fake spirituality, kumbaya moments, those are fleeting. They're temporal. They disappear as quickly as they came. They're fake. They're an ish zara. They're not a tzivoy. They're not a mitzvah. They're not a mitzvah from Hashem. And that's why the Torah says, Yayin v'sheichar al-teisht. When you come in b'vo achem, there's a, a video that came out right before Pesach, put out by Amudim in New York, about Kiddush clubs. I don't know if people saw this video. It's a very, very powerful video of the impact on these Kiddush clubs, on young people who are seeing all that drinking. And they're saying, it's exactly our Pasha. Yayin v'sheichar al-teisht b'vo achem. A nice glass of wine, a lachayim, a scotch in moderation with a meal at a, at, a, at, a, at a simcha. That's part of the Jewish experience. We just drank four cups at the Seder. Just made a bari pregafen this morning at a bris. Make a bari pregafen under a chuppah. That's part of the Jewish experience. That's part of the vitzivanu. But to do it when when you're supposed to be listening to the words of the Navi of the Haftorah, when you should be in shul, a place of davening, when you have access to getting high on tefillah, instead to substitute it with a counterfeit high of drinking and too much drinking, that mixed message not only hurts you, but is devastating for our children. It's a really worthwhile video to see. Parsha ends with kashrus. We don't have time to go into it. Very beautiful ideas about kashrus and why HaKadosh Baruch Hu told us what kashrus is really all about. I'll end with a question. The end of the parsha. It's a funny language. I may speak about it to Shabbos. is what form of the verb? It's reflexive. Do to yourself holiness. And then you'll be holy. What in the world does that mean? How does that connect to Kashras? And what does that mean? It's a very funny language. V'hizkadishtem, reflexively make yourself holy. Okay, if you've made yourself holy, you're holy. V'hizkadishtem, v'hizem kedoshim. What does that mean? Food for thought. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. Is that different than-